0: Perhaps it's fair to say that words, in a sense, fail to think of the joy that fills each of our hearts at the privilege and opportunity of assembling on a Sunday day, on a Sunday like this one. To come together to offer worship unto God, to thank Him for all of His majestic blessings in, in each of our directions, and how thankful we are that we can come together today. You probably have already noticed that our sick list is a bit lengthy, those who in some cases are suffering very serious and severe matters. In fact, some even just brought to our attention this morning. And we'll have a bit more to say about that just a little bit later in our service today. Jesus and Herod the Great. As you think about Herod the Great and Jesus, what a contrast. And in fact, that to some extent will be the basis for our study this morning. I hope that if you hold your Bible open there to Matthew chapter 2, you will have, in fact, the description of the lesson. So I hope that as that's available to you, you'll be able to refer to that over the next few moments as we together look at Jesus and Herod the Great. We all know the Christmas season is, of course, upon us. That actual day of Christmas Day is one week from tomorrow, so a week from today is Christmas Eve. And maybe as you have already invested a considerable thought to that, my hope was to use the lesson this morning as well as the two lessons next Sunday to reflect on some of the surrounding features to the birth of Jesus. Now my hope is to present that in a bit of an unusual way in that I don't think it'll be just the common expectation, But I do think there's lessons in it that will be very moving and very compelling for each of us. But let's start it today with Herod the Great. An interesting character who not only had, of course, a major part to play in the actual scene surrounding the birth of Christ, but who himself was a rascal to say the least. These opening thoughts. As you and I think about this particular season, of course, you and I honor all that the Bible has to say. And our interest is not just in the birth of Jesus at this time of year. In fact, about six months ago, we had a lesson at least directing our attention to that. But today, why don't we consider some of these things? First, the setting of this text. Lucas read just a moment ago from Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I would call to your attention some of the facts of that particular text and then we'll see about some applications as it relates to Herod. First of all, verse number 1 begins by informing us that Jesus was born, although He was supernatural, although He was, of course, a divine being. He didn't just pop into existence in this world, He literally entered it through the channel of birth. That alone is significant, isn't it? This supernatural one, of course, entered in a supernatural way. He was born of a virgin, something that, of course, is outside the realm of biology. Born, indeed, of a virgin. And you'll notice that as He did so, all the elements began to make great rejoicing refrain. Wise men, in fact, quickly make this observation. They had seen a star... And they apparently recognized something unusual. Let's face it, the night sky is full of stars. And yet something unique about one of them led these wise men to where Jesus was, to where the birth took place. And isn't it interesting, they came to worship Him. chapter verse number 2 tells us, the actual language of that verse reads like this saying, Where is he that is born King of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him. Have you ever given thought to those wise men? What was it that made that star look so distinct? They clearly recognized something not only special in a celestial way about that star, but that they needed to come and worship the one to whom it pointed. We've come together today to offer our worship to the God of heaven through that same Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that brings us immediately to the reference to Herod. Verse 3, When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Don't you find it intriguing? The wise men seemingly celebrated at the appearance of the star and the thought of coming to the Christ, and yet Herod was troubled by it. What kind of man was Herod? Why did it trouble him and brought such happiness to the wise man? Well, in a moment, we'll in fact have much more to say about developing that point. But let's in fact immediately continue in the verses that follow because the next idea is this. The first thing Herod did, he assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and he asked them a question. Notice the wording of it, verse number 4. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. Did you notice he didn't just ask, he demanded of them, where is this Christ, the anointed one, the king, supposed to be born? May I ask, how would they have known the answer? These chief priests and the scribes to whom he asked, how did they know the answer? Let's look at verse 5. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah? For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. There's how they knew the Old Testament had prophesied that Christ, this anointed one, was to be born in Bethlehem of Judah. You and I can take note, those scribes and those chief priests, they did have sufficient knowledge of the Old Testament, for that's found in Micah. Micah chapter 5 verse 2, they knew where it was to happen. When Herod asked them, they had the answer, and that immediately asked us to note this. Verse number 7 says, Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. So he had asked in a more directive fashion as to those chief priests and scribes where the Christ was to be born. Now he calls these wise men the same ones who had come from a distance who had seen that star and he said, Tell me, when did the star appear? Now you probably have noticed already again we see no hint that Herod was happy or in a celebratory mood The text had earlier said he was troubled, and now he's asked, So tell me when this star appeared. That's going to be important in just a moment. In verse number 8, And he sent them to Bethlehem, and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him. Herod gave the pretense... You indeed go to Bethlehem, find this babe, but you make sure to come back and tell me so I too can come and worship him. Our thoughts then are these. In verse number 9, look at the joy that we now find. And when they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. These wise men, as they now had been given permission and rather notable authority to proceed, they saw that same star and it pointed them, led them to where the Christ was, this babe. And you'll notice they too had great joy. And with that in mind, you notice verses 11 and following. That brings it to the close of our slide, and if I may just paraphrase some of this. Those wise men came to where the babe was. They brought gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. But you'll also notice they did not return until Herod that they had found him. Now remember, Herod had told them, You go and find him, but you come and tell me again so that I can come and worship him. But they didn't go back and tell him because the text says it like this, verse number 13, "...and when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there, till I bring thee word, for Herod will seek to destroy him." The God of heaven knew that Herod had lied... He wasn't intending to come and worship. He wasn't intending to come and pay his homage and obeisance to the child. His interest was in destroying him. At that point, our slide closes. But it brings us to this one. Because I wanted to highlight something about this character we have introduced, Herod. This text on several occasions has mentioned a Herod the king... Let us study him for a moment. I think if you're perhaps not aware of the kind of man he was, this might be eye-opening at least in one sense. Let's proceed like this. On the one hand, this text is one that is so full of comfort and joy for those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. For all who are Christians, it brings us the realization that that great promise of God to the human family had come. The Christ had come. He had been born as that had taken place. The king ruling, though, over Judea at this time was a man named Herod. And some of these things are now to be noted. It would maybe be difficult to find a person more known for ungodliness, a person more known for evil and filth than was Herod the Great. Don't you find that intriguing? On the one hand, in this Birth was the most innocent, the one who not only was innocent in youth, but he grew up all in his life to be innocent. Never, ever did he sin. Hebrews 4.15 says, He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. First Peter 2.21 says, There was no guile found in his mouth, and yet in the backdrop of his purity and his godliness was this one who was so mean so evil, so ungodly, who in fact wanted to kill him. May I ask, for the one who would wish to do so, what chance does a baby stand against a mean adult who would want to kill him? A baby is helpless. A baby is defenseless. And Herod wanted to kill him, but he didn't succeed. Let's develop some of those points like this. First, as far as developing, thinking about this man Herod, It would be interesting to to remember he had Edomite blood flowing through his veins. Let me say that again. Herod, if you trace back his ancestry, he in fact, in part, was related to the Edomites. And your mind is probably already racing as you think about the Edomites were descendants of Esau, that very brother of Jacob in the Old Testament. Now, that's the very people who often were a thorn in the side of ancient Israel. Remember, they had refused Israel to cross their territory back in the book of Numbers. And you may notice in Jeremiah 51, the God of heaven has much to say in condemnation about the Edomites. They were a people who were very shallow. They were a people who looked only for the moment. They weren't very good at planning The little one-chapter book of Obadiah, in fact, is a powerful statement of God's judgment on the Edomites. It is with all of that in mind. Let's come now to Herod. In the year 47 B.C., Herod the Great came to be ruler of that part known as Galilee. Now, as you look at some of these next statements, this Herod knew what to do to gain the favor of the Roman leaders. And so he gained that favor, and ultimately he thus was elevated to king of Judea. Not just of Galilee, but of Judea as well. It is with that in time, his territory was increased. Rome seemingly liked the way he did things, and they allowed him to reign over more territories. But as you'll notice... This man had nine wives. Now, not all at the same time, mind you, but nine wives and a whole host of children. That, in part, is going to come to be before us in just a few moments. One of the things is clear, not only from some hints in the Bible text, but also from many other references, Herod was an extremely protective man when it came to his territory, specifically his throne. He didn't want any threats to the throne. He wanted to be the sole unique and single leader. He wanted nobody to present a threat to his leadership. With that in mind, look at some of the extents to which he would go. As you think about these, I hope you will gain a feeling as to the evil embodied in this man. The ungodliness there... Let's start like this. First of all, he had his wife's grandfather killed because he perceived in that grandfather a man of great respect who perhaps could ultimately lead military against himself and he wanted no threats to his leadership. Not only that, he had his wife's brother killed. Here was a man who in fact was directly responsible for taking the lives of these others simply because he was envious of the thought they might, in some way, take some threat against his throne. But we are not by any means finished. His second wife, he had her killed in the year 29 B.C. He had her life taken because, again, in her he perceived that she would be a woman who, in sufficient influence, could ultimately lead about a coup. He had her life taken, but that didn't all Her two boys, he had both of them assassinated. Both of them. Can you imagine a father killing his own children and willfully taking the life of his own wife? This man Herod, to say the least, was an extremely great rascal. His appreciation for life was very, very low. Our saga continues. As he got later in years... Herod understood well the fact that not many people liked him, and you can tell why. Right before he died, he had one of his other sons killed. You'll notice there at the bottom, what a statement about the hatred within a man, that as he approached the time of his own death, he could do something like this. Record has it that the illness that afflicted Herod the illness that was bringing him close to death. He knew that he didn't have many more days to live, and he gave the following almost unthinkable order. He had a number of high ranking individuals to be, in essence, arrested, or at least to be brought in place, and he gave order that when I die, kill them too. And here's the reason why he knew nobody would cry when he died. He knew nobody would shed any tears at all. They hated the man. But he knew if all these others' lives had been taken, at least there would be some people mourning when he died. And that's why he had him killed. Can you believe a kind of man that would do this? Against the backdrop of the purity and godliness of that baby, Jesus, we have the evil of a man like this. As you and I close that slide, I've used the word monster to describe Him. But wouldn't you say that He is the embodiment of evil? He is the embodiment of these who would have so little respect for what God holds so high. It is with that in mind, let's continue our lesson then. So far as we have looked at these things, let's now turn to something happier. What about that birth, the birth of that baby, the birth of the Christ the birth of Jesus. You will remember that an angel had already appeared to Joseph on the one hand, as well as to Mary on the other, and told them that that which was in Mary was of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Joseph was going to put her away privately, because here she was pregnant, but it was not by him. Joseph, in fact, being an honorable man, Matthew 1, verses 18 and 19, but yet the Holy Spirit told him, Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because that which is in her is of the Holy Spirit. Joseph accepted those words. And aren't you impressed with the integrity of a man like Joseph? He took in that woman, that, that, that virgin Mary, who was nonetheless pregnant. And you may notice that at this point, so many Old Testament prophecies help us appreciate the magnitude of this occurrence. The second idea. The Old Testament had prophesied that it was through the lineage of Abraham, as well as through the lineage, of course, of David, that would ultimately emanate and come about into the reality of this Christ. In Genesis 22, 18, 2 Samuel 7, and you may notice that the power to crush, again, the power of the devil was also to appear at this time. Wasn't it true in the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve, as well as the serpent, all heard these words, "'The seed of the woman will crush your head, and you will crush, you will in fact wound his heel.'" That bruising of the head of Satan, that of course is now about to occur, inasmuch as the perfect one from God was now entering the world. The next thought is this. Let's pause to highlight this truth. Haven't you often been a bit mindful of the place of the devil? At least in this respect. The devil had been told since Genesis Genesis chapter 3 onward that there was coming a time when his power would be crushed. His head would in fact be bruised. He would no longer have the power that he had had before. Now, the devil knows Scripture just as well as you and I know it. On several occasions in the Bible, he quoted it. Sometimes he quotes rather obscure passages like that scene in Matthew 4. He quoted from Psalm 91. Could you or I just immediately quote Psalm 91? He did it. As the devil uses those Scriptures, he of course tries to twist them and use them in a way that's different from what they actually mean. The devil knew that there was one coming. In the, old, in the Old Testament days, the devil tried to thwart that plan. There were several times he came close to dwindling down the children of Israel so that there was very few of them. In the days of Esther, he in fact was about to annihilate all of them. And if that had happened, how could there ever have been a coming of the Christ? For he couldn't have been through the lineage of, of David or Abraham. However, every time God's providence saved His people, at this time you'll notice the devil has one final chance. There's going to be a little baby born in Bethlehem and I need to kill him. And if I can do that, I will have thwarted finally the God's plan for redemption of the human family. And so the devil first used the wise men. You come tell me where he is and so I can come worship him. But the wise men didn't go back and tell him. And so now, the devil has to resort to a different tactic. As you come to the bottom, he's going to use Herod in one last attempt. As you and I come to Matthew chapter 2, let's begin reading in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, he was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coast thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. And we see now what Herod's attempt was. He earlier had asked the wise men when the star appeared, and now once he saw they didn't come back and tell him where they had found the babe. Now through Herod the following order was given. Kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem and in all the surrounding areas thereof, two years old and under. Kill every one of them. One more time, do you see the evil of this man? Can you imagine slaughtering hundreds of baby boys? And that was the order that Herod gave. Look at the aftermath of it in verse number 17. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying... In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. You perhaps have noticed that in that passage, it makes reference to, then was fulfilled that which was spoken by the prophet. Was there an Old Testament prophecy that Herod was going to do something like this? Was there a time in the Old Testament when there was some kind of prophet that, in fact, there was going to be a great slaughter of children at the time Jesus was born? Who is this Jeremy the prophet mentioned in verse 17? Well, that's the Greek way of writing Jeremiah. And sure enough, as you and I revisit Jeremiah 31, we find the following. That prophecy was therein found, and let me develop a few of its details for just a moment. In the context of Jeremiah 31, there's a statement, there's a description about the people of Israel at that point going into Babylonian captivity. Due to their sin, due to their ungodliness and their failure to serve the God of heaven, they, in fact, were soon going to enter into captivity. And in the course of that description, there is this passage. In Ramah, there was a voice heard lamentation and weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. This is one of those passages that would seem to have a dual fulfillment. It was fulfilled when Israel went into captivity, for the women were crying over the loss of their babies that those Babylonians slaughtered and killed. But it also had a far-reaching future fulfillment as well. And here, Matthew the inspired writer quotes it and applies it to all those mothers weeping for the death of their baby boys in the area of Bethlehem when Jesus was born. Aren't you amazed at the Word of God, how the nuggets of truth are found therein? Things that in fact give us information, events happening hundreds of years into the future, and that's what happened in the days of Jeremiah. And so it is. You and I can say one more time, Herod gave this order for all those baby boys to be killed, but did he succeed in finally killing the Christ at that time? He did not. He did not, for an angel had already given Joseph warning, you take the baby and his mother and you flee into Egypt. And there for a period of time he was preserved and protected. As we come to this next slide, I hope again to instill within each of us an appreciation of the monumental, colossal event that was occurring with the birth of our Savior. Jesus, in fact, was born at the right time. I say that because of Old Testament prophecy as well as Galatians 4, verse 4, And when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Did you note that phrase with me? In the fullness of time. Jesus couldn't have been born a hundred years earlier or a hundred years later. In fact, even ten years earlier or ten years later, it was at the right time. That phrase in the Greek means at the auspicious time, at the proper time. You and I now know it's been roughly 2,000 years since that babe entered this world that way. And oh, what an event has taken place. Not only was He born at the right time, it was also the right place. Again, the chief priests and the wise men, they had appreciated that Micah had foretold it was to be Bethlehem. And so it was. You may notice one final set of ideas. Isn't it interesting that those wise men followed the star and that led them to the Christ? I find that interesting in light of the Revelation because Revelation twenty-two sixteen 16 says, Jesus is the bright and the morning star. Does He bring brightness to your life? He can, He should, He will. That bright and morning star is the one who in fact will illuminate your life and mine in all the ways it should. But we've got to be obedient to His will. For that reason, these final thoughts... Jesus is called the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness in Malachi chapter 4. That's a rather sterling description. The ending of the Old Testament describes Jesus as the Son. We're so often accustomed to thinking about them as as the S-O-N, but He's also the S-U-N. Perhaps one final thought today, and that lesson will be yours. We've seen today about Herod on the one hand and Jesus on the other. Herod was a man of such evil. It gives us an impression of what one becomes without Christ, without the influence of godliness. And on the other hand, there is this perfection, this purity, this godliness. Which would you and I rather be? We have every reason to believe Herod died lost. There's not a single record anywhere in Scripture or otherwise that he ever changed or repented before he died. May I say, if you and I die without being a servant to God, we'll end up eternally the same place Herod is. Do you and I like the thought of that? Do you want to be where murderers and those who would kill their own children and wives and grandchildren, do you want to be a place like that? The question then comes to all of us. That babe that was born in Bethlehem has all the answers. It was he who would later say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Herod tried. He tried throughout 4,000 years of Old Testament history to thwart God's plan, and he failed. When Christ was born, he tried again to kill the Christ child, and he failed. That babe grew up, of course, and became an adult. He brought the gospel message. The unsearchable riches that are of Him, Ephesians 3.8. Have you obeyed it? Have I? To ask it again, am I obeying it? It isn't enough just to be baptized. We must be a faithful child of God every day. Jesus said, In John 10, verse 10, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Do you know and experience the abundant life that Christ has in plan for you? You and I, oddly enough, can thwart that plan. He wishes you and I to have abundant life, but if I choose to live foolishly and serve the devil, I won't have the abundant life he wants me to have. That choice, that decision is left to you and me. The plan of salvation is this, you must believe in Him as the Son of God. He stated that in John eight twenty four. A person must repent of his or her sins. Again, that isn't optional. They on Pentecost who had been guilty of in fact putting Jesus to death, they were told repent. But that's not all they were told. You'll notice there's also a requirement of confession. A verbal, audible statement... The examples that we find say in Acts chapter 8, the great confession of that Ethiopian eunuch. And then of course, up until that time, there still has been no remission of sins because that doesn't happen until baptism. Upon the completion of these other things, a person has been baptized in water for the remission of sins. If there's anybody in this audience today who... Upon realization of these things, you would wish to become a Christian today. Realize the power doesn't rest with me or even our elders. It rests with Jesus Christ our Lord. We just want to do what He told us to do. If today you would be in a position to wish to do that, we would encourage you. But may I say, if you have become a child of God, you've known what it was like to enjoy all the blessings of godliness, but you've slipped into ungodliness You've begun to live a life that's a character different than what the Bible demands of you. You realize you could come back to your first love. This past Wednesday night, we had a person to do that, and we're so thankful for anyone's wish and desire to be right with God. If you would confess those errors and repent of them, let me assure you that we as a congregation will approach God in prayer on your behalf. And God has promised in First John 1 verses 8 and 9 to forgive you. And you can be justified, sanctified, and whole again. Doesn't that excite you? If today we could be of help to you. Don't you want to be more like the Christ and less like Herod? Because Herod again was a lost man. Today if we could be of help to you. Don't delay, but why not come while together we stand and while we sing?